0: Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to get started. Happy Easter, everyone. Good to see your faces. Glad that you're here this morning. So in the field of linguistics, there is a concept that I often think about, because I spend much of my life working with words. And the concept is called the metonymy of language. Anybody familiar with metonymy of language? Nobody, just as I suspected, because you've got to be a really big nerd to like this. So metonymy is a figure of speech that, that you'll recognize. It's when like a thing or a concept is referred to by the name of something else that's, that's really closely related to it. So like if you call upper management at your company the suits, that's a, that's a metonymy also super fun to do, right, sometimes. Um, That's a metonymy. You substitute a name that's closely related, or when we say something like, um, the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, Pen stands in for the written word. Um, The sword stands in for violence. That's a metonymy. Or often, like, on the news, they'll say things like, the White House says, or the Pentagon said. Like, these are buildings. Buildings don't say anything. But they're metonymies, right? We, they stand in for something else. And, and we make these substitutions really quickly. We, we know what they mean. Like, if someone says, refers to Wall Street or Hollywood or says, what's your favorite dish? We know, we know what they mean. Like, you make this metonymic substitution without any trouble. Well, in recent decades, some theorists have begun to say that this isn't just um, some words. All words are like this. All of language is just this string of metonymies, these substitutions, one word for another. Best way I know to illustrate this is if you want to know what a word means, you go to a dictionary and, and look it up. And then what you will find there is more words standing in for that word. And if you look those words up, all you'll find is more words standing in for those words. And, and on and on it goes in this kind of perpetual substitution or slide of one word for another and that's how language works and we always kind of hope that that like the the meaning of that word will be contained in the next word that we find but it never really is words just stand in for other words which stand in for other words which stand in for other words and there's there's no foundational signifier like a, a, a single word to end or ground this whole process. That's, that's it, that's the metonymy of language. It's pretty cool, huh? It's kind of creepy, a little bit creepy. Um, and there's probably something wrong with me because these are the things I like to think about. Um, now there are moments in this kind of uh, endless play of words um, where, it, where the whole thing kind of pauses and a word becomes sort of, sort of um, stitched together, you might say, with a specific concept. And then meaning is, is created that people can share in. This guy, Jacques Lacan, called this, he named it the quilting point. It's kind of a cool wor- word. It's, the quilting point, it's like, he imagined it like the buttons on a sofa or, or like the stitches in a quilt that like something pokes through the, the shifting layers of language and sort of stops the endless slide. And for just a moment, this word and this meaning become stitched together and they create a meaning people, people can share in. He called this the quilting point. And there's a quilting point in every sentence or every paragraph that kind of quilts this specific meaning that can be shared. For instance, like if you're, if you're all dressed up for Easter and your spouse says, um, you, you look so nice today, right? Then, then you know, you can both kind of quilt the meaning of that sentence as they mean to give you a compliment. But if they say, you look so nice today, you should dress like this more often, the quilting point changes, right? And it has a whole different meaning, which is, you know, you're sleeping on the couch tonight. But this because all, all language depends upon our ability to work together to find these quilting points and and then construct this shared meaning. Which kind of means a lot of things at at once. The most obvious is, if you're gonna do this, you need to speak the same language, right? Otherwise there's no quilting. And you also have to kind of share a similar context for some things within the same language. For instance, there's a a different quilting point in, say, Tallahassee than there is in New York City. Um, And more than anything else, we have to share a desire to work together to construct some kind of meaning. Both, both parties have to want to make this happen. If one party isn't genuine about the whole deal, then constructing meaning and, and coming to an understanding, the whole thing just breaks down. So for example, um, sometimes when couples are in a fight, if the fight starts to drag on for a while, and it's like round seven, eight, you know, later rounds, round 10 or 11, and nobody's been knocked out, then they'll start sort of running each other around in circles over language. Anybody have this happen? We start arguing over terms and picking apart each other's syntax, like, what did you mean by this? Well, that's not what you said. What you said was this. And they, they, they basically just destroy meaning together and confuse each other, just hoping the confusion will make the other get up, give up. And I don't have any personal experience with this, but I hear that this happens sometimes <laughs> in fights. I actually have a name for this. I call it the Admiral Akbar defense. Anybody, anybody know what I mean by this? What is it? Yeah, it's a trap, right? Yeah, this is, it's crazy-making to talk with somebody who doesn't sincerely desire to come to a place of understanding, just fighting over terms, right? And this is because meaning making, it it doesn't come easy. You have to work for it and you have to cooperate for it. Here's why I'm going on about this, because this is what I think. I think that cross and resurrection are a kind of quilting point for all of history. In all of our attempts to construct some kind of meaning in life for ourselves right now, for all of us as a community, all throughout history, the the story of cross and resurrection, I'm going to suggest, is, is the quilting point. Stitching together for us the meaning of all lives and all of history and revealing to us really new realities about the nature of God and what it means to be a human person and part of human communities. Um, showing us um, how meaningfulness in life comes as we learn to talk and work together and communicate, as we l- learn how to connect to God and, and ourselves and each other in the world around us and build communities and relationships then that conform to a particular pattern um, of being and relating pattern that's revealed in cross and resurrection. There's this this quilting point that is, I think, the key to unlocking meaningfulness in life. Part of what I'm saying is that I think what's true about the metonymy of words and about the the metonymy of language is also true about the metonymy of story. The stories that we tell. All stories are metonymies. all stories kind of point to other stories in some way and part of how we make meaning in our lives is to find our own story embedded in or caught up in a larger story about life and the world and what it all means because here's the thing our lives in in a very real sense will conform to whatever story we tell about life and the world and what it all means these stories that Our our lives become drawn up into... They have incredible power over us. And not all stories are the same. There's this writer I love, Rebecca Solnit. She says it like this. Stories are compasses and architecture. We navigate by them. We build our sanctuaries and our prisons out of them. Stories are geography, she says. This is so smart. We navigate the world by the stories we tell. And a bad story can lock us like a prison and a good one is like a sanctuary, a place that makes everything just shot through with the presence of the divine, makes everything holy. And we live in this world of competing stories, narratives that are just kind of fighting it out to try to see who gets to shape the meaning of our lives. And and a true story is hugely necessary because it, it um, it can shape us in ways that make us true truly human as human was meant to be but all stories are metonymous and they all have these quilting points where the meaning of the story sort of becomes clear and there are scores of factors that go into like what the the influence what the meaning will be for instance where you begin a story will determine a lot about the range of possible meanings for that story the Christian story, the story of God, begins in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, right? With this God who is, interestingly, distinct from creation, which was peculiar in the ancient world. Um, no, no other religion had a God distinct from creation. Most of ancient cultures just worshipped creation in some form. The Hebrew God was distinct from creation. And because they begin there, this, this changed the way the story gets quilted later on, especially when we bring cross and resurrection into it. And, and then this God, distinct from creation, created things that could create more things, like created trees could make more trees and animals that could make more animals. And one of those creatures, humanity, was given this special capacity for language, for words and meanings and stories and interpretations. And God put them in charge of creation to, to care for it, and steward it, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and, and subdue it, have dominion over it. it, means show leadership, till the earth and keep it, cause it to, to flourish, right? And, and to, to be at um, what the Old Testament calls shalom, to experience shalom, which means we translate it as peace, but it's not peace like just the absence of war, it's peace as in everything that is in its right place doing what it was intended to do, and thereby relating rightly to everything else. And so all of it is, is flourishing. That's, that's shalom, that's peace. And, and God kind of early on, where the story starts, told the creatures like the, the way this goes down, like the way you do this, there's rhythms and habits and practices. You engage in, it'll, it'll help you. So things like Sabbath and, and worship and stewardship honoring God and your your father and mother um, not killing people, not lying, all, all those things. And creation was, it was kind of dynamic and always changing. Plus, from the very beginning, there, there are these twin threats of barrenness and chaos that threaten the peace. And so peace is, it's always been a moving target. And so the human... Human vocation was chase the peace, right? And, and tend to the world and mend the broken things and draw it and your lives toward shalom, toward peace. But then humanity got confused about the things that make for peace. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's the story. So it's like a symbolic way of saying they decided to trust in human wisdom and, and to, to try to tell their own story um, about the meaning of, of their lives. This is Genesis 3, of course, the fall. This tension appears. And immediately, the people get, begin to really struggle in, in their relationships. So all of a sudden, they're, they're, um, they used to just talk with God. Now they're hiding from God. And all of a sudden, the way they relate to themselves is off. They feel shame at their own nakedness, and they cover themselves, right? And then the, the way they relate to one another, they start blaming each other for what has gone wrong. And even the way they relate to the earth is, is off somehow. Their work suddenly becomes toil. And so their experience of life no longer reflected the peace of the garden. It, it was more like, well, it was like, it was more like the world that we live in. This brokenness appeared, and they began to experience this this barrier between humanity and God. And I'm telling you guys, to this day, this is one of the biggest struggles in the human experience. There is this distance we feel between humanity and God, and it just makes us a little crazy sometimes. And it's, it's odd because there, there's a sense in which this distance is both a blessing and a curse, which is weird. I mean, it's it's a blessing, though, in that it forces us to grow up. You know, God gives us a certain amount of freedom and autonomy, sort of pushes us out of the nest because it's time for us to fly. So God's asking us to take responsibility for creation. Work out your vocation. To do your part in, in shaping um, the meaning of this story and, and so this distance kind of fills us with a longing to span the dis- to to close the distance a longing for God a longing for meaning a longing for connection with each other and it just sort of propels us into our lives and so there's a sense in which it's a blessing the distance is it's there so that we can have the freedom to love and and to be faithful keep faithing because without the distance we'd just be like zombies or kind of sycophantic robots. But it's also a curse because this freedom is, is really powerful and it's a lot to handle. And so this, this distance between humanity and God, it causes problems and, and, and we struggle to do the right things for ourselves and for each other and for creation and we struggle to be patient And trust in God and to acknowledge our mistakes and learn from them. We get insecure and afraid and hurt each other. And we start trying to to quilt the the meaning of the story in self-serving ways. that end up hurting people, usually the vulnerable. And we try to pretend like everything's fine, but it's not fine. And so these problems emerge in other ways. Things that we name um, addictions, depression, anxiety. Things like individualism, consumerism, nationalism, violence, abuse, self-hatred. I mean, just some really dark chapters emerge in the human story. When this happens, we start to get a little bit worried about how the story's going to end. Because, of course, where you end a story um, will also determine the range of possible meanings. And there are, just some, meaning, there are some endings that just terrify us. Even just the universal ending of human mortality terrifies, and we'll do all kinds of crazy things to engineer the ending that we want or to avoid the ending that we fear. Makes me think of um, the TV show Friends. You know the episode, um, the, the one where Old Yeller dies? You know this one? Where Phoebe learns that her mother always showed them the movies but that were sad movies and wouldn't show them the end of the movie. So she didn't know old Yeller dies at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, And then she, so she goes back and starts watching all these old movies and she's like totally depressed because the world is such a horrible, horrible place. We were talking about this at staff meeting this week and Joanna Regeer told us this story. She was in a library helping a kid find a book. And she, she happened on Charlotte's web, which is kind of sad um, in, in the end. And she's like, ah, oh, this is a good book. And so she's slipping through, about to give it the kid, she gets to the, to the um, t- title page, and some little kid had written in pencil in like big block letters, very sad, do not read, Explanation point. Isn't that hilarious? Just trying to save a friend from a little heartache, you know, like good deed. The thought of a tragic ending makes us crazy, right? And so it's no surprise that um, the source of much of the pain and violence in our world seems to come from powerful people trying to dictate the end of the story. Or Or they have some utopia in mind that they try to impose on the world. And they can justify almost any means in order to accomplish those ends. And I'm telling you, I mean, people who, people who claim to know how the story is going to end in our world are dangerous people. And there's usually a trail of bodies in their wake. Much of the world's violence is brought about by people with power trying to impose their ending on the story. Often religion gets pulled right into this Because what we want is a God who can guarantee a happy ending and and a God who will like, you know, eradicate our enemies and fix all our problems and, and punish those we've scapegoated as the source of all the barriers and the brokenness. And most religions just jump in and try to make that promise. And sadly, much of what passes for Christianity has done this as well. But it's a lie. It's not true. Because this sort of ending, this isn't in the cards for us. I'm not saying it might not happen for you. I'm saying it cannot happen. And and here's why. Because the barrier, the the brokenness, is not out there somewhere. In somebody else or some other group. It's in here. It's in us. in, in, In the groups that we're part of. We could eradicate all the bad guys we want, but then what are we gonna do about us, you know, about ourselves and the darkness in our own hearts and our own fears and our own shortcomings and struggles and this distance we feel between God and us and us and other people and ourselves. And I know I say this a lot, but I just think it's one of the main confusions of our time, especially among religious people, that the line between good and evil does not pass between people or groups of people. It passes through every human soul and every human community we form. If we start trying to eradicate the problem, we have to start with ourselves. And that is not the Christian story. And yet, Christianity does make some big claims. I mean, really big claims about the story that it tells. It's has the audacity to claim that uh, there are many overarching stories that you can be part of in the world, but the truest of them all is this one. And and they say it's true because it can make us true, truly human. Christianity claims the only way you'll ever make sense of your story is for your story to be drawn into this bigger story about life and the world and how everything can flourish. And even though there's all this anxiety about the meaning of life and all this fear about how it's all going to end and all these powerful people trying to impose their ending on it, amidst all of that, the Christian story just makes this audacious claim, this radical claim. And this claim is, as as far as I know from my study, it is unlike any of the other religions of the world. Christianity is completely unique in this one thing. And, and this thing is centered in cross and resurrection. And the claim is that this distance that we feel, like the barrier between us and God that is so troubling to us, like the, the brokenness of our lives, um, the Christian story claims that this has all been included in God's own life because God in Christ um, experiences all of this, um, the distance, the brokenness on the cross. This is the Good Friday story, right? When Christ hangs there and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is this moment of, of revelation that, that tells us that the, um, the brokenness is not a barrier between humanity and, And God, because God has included it in God's own life, we see it there in the voice of of Christ as he says, why the distance, why have you forsaken me? God has included the barrier and the brokenness in God's own life. And so the cross just sort of dares us to believe that this is a God who has scars on his body, Just, just like us. That Jesus was a man of sorrows, who's acquainted with grief, like you and me. That God has walked where we walk and this God has suffered with humanity as humanity. And this God has even experienced death and has somehow come out on the other side more alive than before. And that's the quilting point of of the Christian story. And if it's true, the quilting point for all of human history that God has drawn the distance and the barriers and the brokenness into God's own life and, and just quilted it to the central meaning of the central story of Christianity. And so, our brokenness, you know, it's not going away, but it has been transformed. It has become the point of contact, not the barrier, the point of contact between humanity. And God and it's become the, the condition of possibility for something new for a new life that's resurrection resurrection is not a story about how we can somehow trade the death of God so that we can avoid an end ending we don't like or, or avoid brokenness or escape death that's not it it's about how if we'll be faithful and have, have courage and go all the way into the brokenness and death and through it and out the other side right that we will come more alive than we've ever been before because this barrier that we feel this distance it's it's been it's been uniquely filled with the presence of God and we see this on the cross but in the, in the metonymy thing, that to have this meaning, to quilt this meaning to our lives. Both parties have to want it. And then maybe the craziest part of the whole story, or at least it is to me, is that from from that point on, like from the place of cross and resurrection, which is the center of the Christian story, and I'm saying is just the, the quilting point for the meaning of all of life, from 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 that place of resurrection and... and redemption of the whole story the meaning has been quilted right it's the meaning is set by god but god refuses to write the end of the story for us to like dictate the end and impose it on us instead god just invites us to help write the ending of the human story with god and with in cooperation with the entire human family And you see this over and over in the story of God. God just keeps pushing um, responsibility for the world back on us. God doesn't say, you know, don't worry, just sit back, I'll fix everything. God's like, you fix it. That's your job. That's what you were created to do. Get back to it. But God makes this promise that that is quilted into the meaning of the the story through cross and resurrection. And the promise is that even in the brokenness, you know, even when you feel the barrier, even when it just all doesn't seem real, and you can't even say, I believe, God is, is there. God says, I will be with you. I will always be with you, and you will always be with me. And so you don't have to be afraid. Jesus' guys were, when he started predicting his death, they are getting really nervous, and they were starting to act a little nutty. So Jesus one time said, you know, okay. Whenever two of, or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll show up even after I'm gone. Like, I'll be there with you. And, and you'll know I'm with you. And, and this means, you know, a couple thousand years later, anytime we conspire together to pursue the kingdom of God, um, when we do life in, in Christ's name, which means when we, we live life the way Christ lived, then, then God shows up living in us and through us and kind of in the spaces in between and God says I'm not going to do this for you um, but we'll do this we'll do this together it's almost I think of it like a, a parent who sort of holds themselves back and you kind of self-limit um, letting their kids take the lead in something and, and try new stuff and when they when they mess it up the parent is right there and, and can help guide them and help them figure out how to make, how to make it work but and even if they fall hard like fall flat they get to try again because grace means endless second chances and so they they try they fail they try again fail better all the while god this loving father inhabits the failures they become the place where god is like i see a failure i'm headed right there i'll show up in that that broken place god just fills it with God's presence, just delighting in the chance to, to share that with humanity and to find a way to take it through the brokenness and out the other side into something unimaginable before, something brand new. It's weird, I know, but like God has quilted the meaning of the story but does not impose the ending on us. God invites us into it help write the end of the story and to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit and really with only one main stipulation and that is if you want a good ending to the story if you want peace and shalom to be the way this all goes um, that ending will only come by way of faith hope and love and the greatest of these is love the self-sacrificial kind All of us just taking up our cross daily and pouring out our lives for each other and for the life of the world. Just knowing that God's presence will always show up, filling us up again as we pour ourselves out, filling us up again. All the while, the Father lives in us and through us each day, telling us to just go live, just live like crazy and don't be afraid. I mean, it's really all that God says to all of creation, especially the human creatures. Just live. I, I want you to live and don't be afraid. Just be, you know, exist. I want you to be and live in this world and not just live. I want you to live and be at peace. I want you to know Shalom everything in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do and relating rightly and thereby, all of it just flourishing in peace and bathed in the presence of of God because God has quilted the meaning of the story together through cross and resurrection. And this, this tells us that the brokenness, the barrier that runs down the middle of all this, it's not a problem. This is not a problem. This is the point of contact between humanity and God. So God just says, you know, I've included it in my own life, so I've included you. And, and there's just this open invitation to us. Just come join the fun. Help write the ending of this story. Live like there's nothing to fear because there's nothing to fear. And, and this, is, this is a good story. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this story of cross and resurrection that lives at the heart of the Christian narrative. I'm grateful to be caught up in it. Um, We confess also just how we struggle with the barrier, struggle to feel sometimes like you're real struggle with our own brokenness and our own fear about how the story's going to end and trying to impose our meaning. But we're grateful that you make this promise to us that the place of our, our biggest brokenness and struggle is, is always the place you rush to. It's the, always the place of your greatest work of just mercy and forgiveness and grace. And we just confess that we long to be part of a world like that. And it feels like the best we can do is maybe just try to make this little church a place like that. Where we don't have to pay for our mistakes and there's just always the presence of a loving God shining through another person who's with us in the darkness. Pray that we could live and chase peace and and live without fear. Amen. If you'll stand, please. We're going to receive communion. And um, it's an odd thing to do, I know. Like you come forward in a group and you get handed shrink wrapped juice and little non tasty chunks of bread right? Um, it's an odd thing. It was odd at the, at the very first time. In fact, it was a lot of the reason that people were, thought Jesus was a nutter. Because um, the last night, he was with his followers. They were eating dinner, and after supper, he took a piece of bread, and he, he passed it around. They all ate a piece of it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then in the same way, after supper, he took this cup, and they all drank from a com- common cup. And he said, "This cup is a new covenant in my blood." And then he said, "Whenever you um, get together, eat this bread, drink this cup. Remember my death until I come again." And what this came to mean to the church was that they're they're feasting on his life, like taking his life into their life, and becoming new, like. He made out of the stuff he's made out of and then sent out into the world to, be, to work on this ending of the story, right? To tell people about this quilting point that renders the brokenness, the, the place of God's presence. Man, it's such a good story. And he said, just go, go out, remember me and let the world feast on you and come alive again. And so this is why we do this. Um, and The way we do it is we just come row by row and um, the ushers will hand you Um, You can grab the the little package and they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or I remember however you feel like responding. But um, this is also why we set no limits on who can join us. Like any ragamuffin who doesn't know what they're doing, you're welcome to come up here. And we can't even tell you what's happening. We can just say, eat this bread, drink this cup, join, join in this family, right? So let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing this day on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world Feast on us and taste and see your goodness and be drawn into this great story. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?